Well, Lance, thank you for dropping my backstage pass. We really appreciate it. Right. You know, thank I, you for having me down. Yeah, and thank you for having me on your podcast. I was All the right. first one. Right. You were the first one. I was the first guest. So and I, you're the first one I did twice. Yeah, yeah. yeah That's right. Yeah. So I, I really appreciate that. Tell me, what brought you to Japan? Actually, I came here in the Air Force um, in 1974. And it's because I actually put in for Vietnam. When I put in for Vietnam, they said, you know, you remember the, the dream sheet they have where you have to put in where you go if you don't get what you put in for. So I put in for Vietnam, and they said all of Asia, all of Europe, or anywhere on the west coast of America, since I'm from California. They came back and said, Vietnam is booked. We've got all the people we need, but we can give you Japan. And I said, okay, let's go, because I hadn't been outside the continental United States. And then I said, uh, Let's go. And I was expecting to come here and see rickshaws and people with grass hats on. And I remember being on the plane coming in and seeing these itty bitty cars and trucks. And when I landed and got out the plane, there were still itty bitty cars and trucks. They hadn't changed. But no, the place was completely different. I mean, everything worked. They had cabs that had automatic doors. Mom and pop shops that weren't bigger than my bedroom had automatic doors, and I thought somebody didn't tell me the truth about this country. And that was my first experience here in Japan. Now, people are gonna look at this when you said you you were trying to get out because it was war going on. Yes, so yes. You you are the best fight. You are the goal. I wanted to get outside the United States since I was drafted and then enlisted into the Air Force. I wanted to see something. All I'd seen is Puerto Rico and Louisiana and Texas. <laughs> I wanted to go someplace. And I've been here ever since. <laughs> I haven't left. Now, the, the, the thing is, there's a lot of people who are in the military here, U.S. Uh, military, and they get out and they take jobs and things like that. Very few of them get out and accomplish what you accomplished mm -hmm. in business. Now, kind of walk me through that because uh, most people are going to think like, wow, a Lance was an instant success story or whatever, but, but how, did you, what, what, how did you make that transition? The thing that happened when I came here, I knew this would be my last two years in the service. And when I got out of the service, there's one thing I wanted to know how to do, and that was use money. No one had ever taught me how to use money. And I knew that if someday I ever got any, I'd want to know what to do with it. And I knew what I was doing wasn't going to make it. So I got on the base and I went outside the base and they had two financial firms where they sold real estate, state, mutual funds, insurance. And I didn't know anything about any of those. So I went into the first one and I talked with the guy and he said, how can I help you young man? I said, I'd like to work here. And he said, what would you like to do? I said, I'd like to sell. He said, you want to sell? Why do you want to sell? And I said, because you have to teach me and once I learn, I'm going to apply it for myself. He said, you've got a job. 
because no one's ever come in here and asked to be a salesman. To make a long story short, I worked for that company, did very well in that company. The one down the, down the street from there offered me more percentage on my sales, which was like maybe two or three percent more, which means a lot. So I ended up working with them. Now believe it or not, the second firm I worked for was owned by a black man, and so was the first one. And the second one had all black staff. We learned how to sell. And they, they told me something that I had never heard. They told me it was easier to make money the right way, and honestly, than to make it illegally. So that set me on the path. And that's what I think helped me to form my life, set up a business and everything after I got out of the service. Because every time I went back to the States, I realized how much I knew. And when I came back here, I could apply it. The initial part was my father telling me little things like do business in a business-like way, um, reach for the stars. Those things I took to heart. And uh, he used to always tell me that people liked me too. And that didn't hurt because I was doing cool sales. And I had to talk to people all the time, which is not easy to do. And having that put in your mind that people like you by my father made it easier for me to do what I was doing. But it didn't lessen the pain of people closing the door in your face or hanging up on you when you call them as a cold call. What, what kind of apprehensions did you have? You know, you're a black man in a different country. I mean, were, did you perceive anything differently? Did that, did that cause you to go, buy, go about getting business differently? Because I was in this black firm, I had a lot of mentors. I had a lot of examples of successful black men in the firm I was in that had no chance of staying in Japan, but they were good at what they did. And being black did not hinder them one bit. They showed me how that was an advantage for them because they told me, in Japan, we don't have a negative. There's no negative view. So Japanese look at us as one, one of three things, entertainment, sports, and military. And none of those are negative. And as I started to live here and deal with people, I started realizing the Japanese, they deal with you if you have something to offer. If you have something to offer of quality, you're good to go here. And it doesn't really matter. And that took me 10 years to really start to believe. Because at the beginning, yes, America puts a big what can I say? It traumatizes you if you're of color. So I was traumatized, and it took me 10 years to get out of that, to start to realize the trauma that I'd gone through living in a country that made me feel like it didn't want me, or that I was something bad, or that no matter what I did, I'd have to do, do it twice as good. That took, a time, took me time to get out of that way of thinking. And you know, that's something I've heard from, not just uh, black men, but i heard from other nationalities who come to Japan to say, you know, they, they see you as a foreigner, but in the sense that that's the only difference, that that's you're a foreigner in this, right? That, you're right, you're right. But you have been the president of the American Chamber of Commerce, you have been the president of the Tokyo American Club, one of the most illustrious clubs in all of Asia and all over the world, and that on top of your other accomplishments. So how did that kind of, how did that come about? 
Every time I think about that, I, I wonder the same question. How did that how did that happen? I don't know. The chamber I had no aspirations or idea that I could ever become the president. That was not one that was not one of the goals in my mind. But I had been VP for quite a long time. I already had a successful business. I had my gymnastics program and I bought UCT scanners. The only one in Japan doing it at the time. And I decided I need to really get involved with the community because only the gymnastics part got me involved with people that had kids. Mm -hmm. I wanted to deal with other people that didn't have kids, other adults. So I said, let me get involved. They were doing business in Japan, so I got involved with the chamber, got on the board, became a governor. A couple of years after that, then I became VP and continued to be VP. And what happened that got me into becoming a president it was in 2002. I got a call. He said, Lance, I have a request of you. And I said, he said, the chamber has a request of you. And I said, they're going to ask for more money. And they always you know, come on. You need to donate this much more, this whatever. And he said, we want you to put your name in the hat for president. And my knees got weak, but at the same time, I thought it was a joke. And I said, no, thank you. And he said, I'm serious. I said, you're right. He said, no, really. When you come back from Osaka, come to the office and I'll let you talk with you. I did. We sat down. He started talking to me and then I started realizing he was serious. And then what set in is, well, why? The Chamber's never had an African-American president. They've never had in a Japan. In Japan, they've the second largest chamber in the world. The only chamber bigger than ours is the one in the US, the American Chamber of Commerce in DC. We're the second largest chamber in the world. If, if I were to become president, let's say I didn't run, and I really had a chance of becoming president, I wouldn't only be hurting myself, but anyone coming behind me. I had four boys. And I thought, <clears throat> for them, and most of all, for myself, and those who follow behind me, I should go for this. And not to pat myself on the back, because I really didn't want it. I was afraid that these guys are all Harvard, Yale, MIT, Fortune 500 companies. That's who had been president of the chamber. The guy prior to me was the president of AIG, one of the largest insurance companies in the world. Here I am with my company. I did scanner sales. I did well. I did very well. I'm not going to say I didn't do well, but I didn't go to an Ivy League college. <laughs> I went to a city college and for a year, and then I got drafted. <laughs> but, I, but I used to start off my speeches at the chamber by saying this, where they asked me, um, who did I work for? And I said, one time in my life, I worked for the largest, most powerful corporation on the planet. It was so large and powerful that if I were to work for someone they didn't like, they could imprison and or kill me. And people would think, what, GE? DuPont? And I said, no, the United States military. And the truth is, the military spends billions of dollars on how to train and they do a good job. Within six to eight weeks, they have us willing to give our life for a medal we'll never see. You've got to have a good training system to be able to do that. The governors I worked with, the staff in the chamber, they were in my corner. They supported me. I mean, as the first African-American there, I mean, I had interviews with the top newspapers. They sent me to a DC door knock where we went to DC and went to all of the different senators' offices 
and talk to leaders in business. I went to the Japan Chamber of Commerce. The first time in 15 years they had anyone from our chamber go in there and had an audience with him, the, the, um, the president of that chamber. I saw the president of the American Chamber in the US, who was very prominent. And it was an eye-opening experience. But that one year as president was probably one of the most exhilarating experiences I had in my whole life. And then you started getting involved with the American Club, and again, through boards and stuff like that. What made you look at that position and say, hey, I, I can do this, or I want to do this? This is a funny thing that happened. I was a teacher at the American School. And they said, I'm going to the American Club. I'm going to the American Club. I'm going to the American Club. So I think after a while, I said, I'm going to find out what this American Club is. So I got on the bus with the kids, dropped off at the American Club, middle of Tokyo, right next to the Tokyo Towers. You walked in there, everybody had a brand new car, it looked like. It was just unreal. I walked into the building, looked around, and then I walked into the room close by the library, and they had a picture of all of these men, and it was the Hall of Presidents. And I didn't see one person of color. And jokingly, to myself, somewhat jokingly, that one day, I'm going to be the first black president up there. Bingo. Later on, I guess maybe I must have believed that a little bit. I tried to run for the presidency the same year they asked me to run for the president at the American Chamber. Because I didn't want to be president of the American Chamber. I didn't think I could do that. For the first time in known history, they had a sit-down interview of the three people that wanted to run for president. And they sat down and asked me why and everything else. And I thought it kind of funny, but I knew what was going on. And then they asked me what I would do if I weren't put on the slate. Would I go out and get the list of names? You need to get 100 names to put your name on the slate by, by members to do it. So they asked me if I would do that, and I said, no, I wouldn't do it. If you don't put me on the slate, I figure you must have a reason. So I wouldn't go out and get the 100, 100 signatures to put myself on the slate. So they said, OK. So when they came back to me a week later, they said, we decided not to put your name on the slate. <laughs> I said, OK. And I got elected president of the American Chamber. Fast forward, 2007, I wanted to become president. And I'd been VP. I was already VP at the attack for several years. As a matter of fact, I just found out. Here's a little trivia, trivia point for you. I'm the second longest governor to ever serve at the American Club. I served for 18.5 years. And the only person above me is Fred Harris, and he served for 19 years. It's a little over six months longer than me. We're the two longest serving governors in the American Club's 93-year history. Okay. Anyway, I want to put my name up on the slate again. They don't want me to. So I said, OK. So I got the 100 signatures. And surprisingly, really quick, I got 100 signatures. As a matter of fact, it, it caused a little bit of um, hot emotions among the governors thinking that was wrong for our nominating committee not to put me on the slate. So it did create a little bit of um, frustration among our governors. They thought that was not fair. And to their, to their benefit, I mean, they were in my corner. But for whatever reason, 
they didn't want to put my, the, the nominated committee didn't want to put my name on the slate. Got 100 signatures, got my name on the slate. Long story short, I became president. I think that's what they call me, landslide lands. I'm serious. <laughs> but I got my name on the slate. I don't know if I want to tell you all the things that happened, but it was a challenge. One of the challenges, a couple of the challenges, SARS. First of all, we're in a temporary facility because we have a brand new $300 million facility being built. Okay. We moved from the location we're at and we're in a temporary facility. That was already frustrating. Any move, as you know, can be stressful for anyone. People don't like change unless they're the ones making it. And all this is happening against half of the membership's will. They did not want to move. They wanted to keep the old building, do whatever it took to keep it. But we went ahead and decided to get a brand new, to build a brand new building. SARS hit first during my presidency. Then we get the Lehman shock. Where yeah, I had it's funny to be with that there because that is. gutted us basically. A lot of the expats had to go home. I mean, a good number of them had to go home because not just the people involved in finance. Everything that that those markets touched. And a lot of the people were dependent upon those financial firms. So when they walked out of Rapunzel Hills with their all their possessions in their office and went home, it really hurt the club. But we started recruiting to the benefit of the club. The staff there, fantastic. And the members, it's a social club. So the members, everybody comes there and they want to be social. But what happens in a club with the prestige that ours has? For many people, including myself, being a member of the club, that's the first time. So what happens is you walk past someone tense, and they're doing the same thing, and what you're both thinking is the same thing. Look at how stuck up that person is. Both wanting to talk to each other, but thinking the other one's stuck up, and they must have been here longer than you. So what I would try to encourage people to do is, when you see somebody without a smile, give them yours. And we start to build up a social environment where we had the committees moving, we had the members getting involved, our board was involved, yeah, well, the staff were involved. It was really good. Yeah, one thing I wanted to point out because you know that's the one thing that I hear the most about people when they talk about your tenure as a, the president. They says Lance always talked to me. He was never too important to, to spend a meeting and talk to. And these are again presidents you know, CEO people uh, the same way. And I think they, some of them took that from you and applied to their business. Mm -hmm. You know, so to have that kind of impact on people had to make you feel good. Mm -hmm. Well, I got that. It did make me feel very good, but I got that from people. There was a, there was a president prior to me, our comments, and he was the type of person that when you got close to him, you got in his orbit. Mm -hmm. He never ignored you. Good orator, always had a smile for you, easily gave you a smile. And I said, should I am? And he was always everywhere. You turn around and he'd be right there. And he'd tap you on the shoulder and, and, and introduce you to someone that you didn't know that was in the club. And that could be the start of a new business. You never knew. He was always connecting people, always speaking. And he knew when to get away. He wasn't the type of guy that you didn't want to get with. You wanted to get in his orbit because you knew it was going to benefit you somehow, if no more than just having a pleasant conversation that day. Mm -hmm. I wanted to be like that.
So I said, I modeled myself after that, after Mr. Collins, because he was such a vibrant soul, and he was so good for the membership. But you also went through the 311 earthquake uh, scenario. How did that impact the crowd? What kind of challenges did that I'm with the ambassador, we cut the ribbon to a winter garden field full of members. And like, this is going smooth. The members are getting used to the new club. We have a pool up on the fifth floor. We have traders bowling. There's a ball. It's just beautiful. It was a beautiful club. All of a sudden, I'm on the second floor of the building, shaking the hand of the president of Motorola, Mohammed, good friend of mine. I'm shaking his hand, and the building starts to shake. And I go, I think this is the big. And Muhammad squeezing tight and tight said, I think you better let go and let's walk down these steps and go outside. We did, and I'm watching Tokyo Tower sway, and then, to put icing on the cake, one of the members says, Mr. Lee, look up, and I look up towards our rooftop pool, and I can see water coming down the side. And all I'm thinking is there's a big crack, and now we've got a soaked building inside, all the water damage. Thank goodness what happened was actually the water just started swishing like this and it just a little overspilled. Not a single glass in our building broke. That building was rock solid. It was fantastic. Matter of fact, when I told everyone it's all clear, I had our managers tell them all clear. Just then, which was 30 minutes after, we got the next big one. And I said, look, it's too cold outside. I think we're safer inside. I'm going in. All of you, the ones who can come in with me. And people started coming in because I said that's safer inside, I think, than outside. Because we had we were standing over the underground parking area, and I'd watched the building being built. And I thought, if that collapsed, I, I just could picture that. I want to be inside the building. I called our ambassador and I said, Ambassador Russo, you're leaving. He said, No. I said, Is Susie, your wife, leaving? He said, No. So we stayed here, and to his credit, and to the credit of all of our staff, not only did they stay, I was there every day. The ambassador came regularly to give updates to all of the members that were still there. My mother wrote me, to give you a better idea of how I felt about being in Japan, my mother wrote me a message as soon as she heard the, the earthquake. She said, leave Japan. And I immediately texted her back, the only drama to be found in Japan is on CNN. Because everyone had parked their cars, locked them, walked home, Convenience stores were handing out water, water, cup ramen, no expense, just because it's an emergency. If you got in the line later on for toilet paper or anything like that, and they had run out, no one lost it, they said, mm, I guess that's the way it is, and they waited until you got to stock in. People were sharing, people were giving away, it was just, I don't care what natural disaster it comes, or unnatural disaster that happens, there's no place on this planet I'd rather be than here, because the Japanese people have learned throughout centuries how to handle themselves in disasters. Yeah. You've always been sought out by people who want to do business in Japan or who want to expand their business in Japan or just or just uh, just sometimes have problems and, and they come to you. Is that a, a role that you embrace, or is that just something you, it just goes with the territory? No, it's a rule that we've embraced because 
not only is it me now, of course, my sons are very heavily involved in all the businesses we do. Yes. Through the resource group, we give them business advice. We also we help businesses get financing. So we do several things. But because most of these are very capital intensive, they don't happen real quick. And they all take a certain amount of time. Is this, do you feel that this happens because you're doing your tenure as the Chamber of Commerce President at the Tokyo American You're able to build relationships and people trust you and they, they value? Most people get their, their circle of influence or their network through their universities. If they go to an Ivy League school, they always have the contact of the people in that school and they venture off wherever they go. So that's their contact. I didn't have that. But what I started doing through the expat community is getting involved in different projects, first with their children, through the gymnastics, then in the chamber, the connections I got there. Because my medical equipment business didn't get me involved with anyone in the expat community because I was dealing with hospitals and taking out their most expensive asset. It gave me money, but I didn't have connections. So in order to get the connections, I thought I better join the chamber. This is a small island. And even though we have, we're in the expat community, I don't advertise, and I very seldom have ever advertised. I might have done that a couple of times when I was single. I don't advertise because word of mouth is tremendous. And people let you know, if you're good or bad, you find out real quick here. You can't hide too much in this environment. Well, the thing I, I like about you, too, is you, you constantly adapt. I mean, I, I, I've never seen you trail. Now with your, with your podcast, you, you, you're taking this to, as we say, a whole nother level. You and I talk about yeah, that. Yeah, and, and because now you're sort of reversing the role. Now you're reaching out to all these people. Mm -hmm. You're telling their story. Mm -hmm. I mean, well, why, what, what, what pointed you in that direction? And what, what does it feel like? What's, what's some of the highest? Well, I can use you as an example. I didn't know, we've sat together for many hours and talked and talked and talked. When you got behind that camera, you started telling me something I'd never heard. That's, and you told me that before too. You said, Lance, there's nothing like putting a camera on somebody if you want to get to know them. And doing this has been therapeutic. I started hearing things like, that's the way I feel. And this guy in his position feels the same way. Um, it gives me an insight to them, and, and, and people trust you with it. Their story. First of all, they're not going to come to you unless they trust you. And when they trust you with their story, that's a big responsibility. And it's also, it's, what can I say? What word do I want to say? It makes you feel so honored. You're trusting me with that. You've told me that. I know you don't tell everyone. And it just makes you feel so, it humbles you. And you get to see, oh, it helps you to see the child inside them. I work with kids. They don't have any facades. And when I get with people, they break down the facades. And they start telling me their truth. So much so, that's why you'll find in a lot of my podcasts, cast their editing. Because I've been in programs where you're supposed to tell your truths and everything. There's some truths you don't need to tell. I believe that. Because you're still dealing with society. I try to make sure none of my podcasts put people in a position where they can be judged in a negative light. 
but yet you still have enough information so that you can approach them and say, yeah, I saw that. You met Michael Jackson? You spent two, oh, wait, how long was that? Three weeks with Michael Jackson? Beside him the whole time? That, how many people knew that? Even though it was a month, how many people knew that? They didn't know you were behind the camera. You never came from behind the camera and said, hey, by the way, here's Dan Smith. That information is something people don't get, and I'm able to get on the podcast. So it's something I can see doing for a long, long time. I really enjoy it. And I, I guess, uh, to wrap up, one of the things I wanted to get from you is, uh, you always inspire me, and I tell you straight up, you, you inspire me. Why do you have such a healthy enthusiastic about the truth. Because a lot of people are, are, are afraid of the truth. They, they dread it. They, they get up in the morning and they go, oh my God, what am I going to go into the day? You get up and it's almost like, you know, you, you can't wait to get that day started. It could be my father, it could be my grandmother, and it could be my 93-year-old mother who beat me when she came here for her 91st birthday and bowled with me and beat me by two points the first game. Maybe that's what it is. But I believe in technology. I've always been fascinated with sci-fi. The things we have, for example, this. Who would have ever believed we would have something in our hands right here, shaped like this, that can do everything Dick Tracy was trying to do when he had that watch and you saw a face on it when we were little kids. We went, no way! And we can talk to anybody on the planet with this and see them and show them everything. We can fax information, we can transfer money, we can take pictures, we can record, we can play music. Come on, with this one person's idea, or several, I should say that, with the idea of mankind, what's it gonna be tomorrow? I have a big faith that only two things are gonna happen in the near future, within the next two decades, Dan. Two things, either we're gonna wipe ourselves off this planet as human beings, We'll be another person, or we're going to make it so we can live indefinitely with our technology. Those are the only two things. That's why I have belief in it. I believe, I only want to live so long, and I believe it is unrealistic to think. In my lifetime, I'm only halfway through my life, and I'll be 70 next year. So I have another 70 years knowing what I know now, and in good health, because they say that right now, Everything in the human body can be replaced except for the brain. And I think we're getting close to that. I want to thank all of you for watching this podcast, which is really a backstage pass. <laughs> and never forget, it's all unknown. Continue to reach for the stars, and you're too blessed to be stressed. All right. Nice. Rock and roll it, rock and roll it all time. That's the way we rock it. That's the way we rock it. Good.